from you who would you like to hear as a guest on the podcast send me an email at matt at wisefoolpod.com or direct message me on instagram or facebook the entire world is now available through virtual recordings and i want to take advantage of that i want to talk to people in south america asia and africa give me some names and contacts of professional people that work in different aspects and different elements of the art world You can also help by supporting our network through our Patreon account. You can find us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the wise fool, all one word. If you enjoy the conversations and the insights that you gain from the guests, I would appreciate a five-star rating and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I know that one of my weaknesses is my inability at self-promotion. So here we go. If after hearing this conversation, you want to know more about me and my artwork, please go to my website, matthewdoles.com. M-A-T-T-H-E-W-D-O-L-S.com. Thanks. I want to start off with a a bit of a I'm not I'm not sure if apology is the right word or whatever but l- let me just get through a little thing that I I've been thinking about for a long time, okay? You ready? Totally. Okay. When uh years ago, how how many years ago was now? 6 years ago when we did the workshop together? I'm 73 and my memory's failing and I have no notion. I'll go with six years ago, I think at this point, maybe seven years ago. For the listeners, so seven years ago, I came and did a workshop with you uh, in France uh, for seven days. And I fully admit and sort of openly realized years ago, but have been very sort of scared slash anxious to even admit out loud, much less now I'm doing it publicly on the podcast. I know what you're about to say, and it isn't necessary. It's necessary for me. I I feel the need to sort of just say it out loud because I I don't talk about my own problems. So I went to your workshop uh, because what it is I, in a previous conversation I had on another podcast, we talked about expectations of how people go to workshops. And one of the things is I believe I made a horrible error with your workshop, which was that I went in with these preconceived expectations, hopes, and ideas of what I was going to try to get from them that were completely unrealistic and they, I should not have had them. Uh, I, I wanted slash desired to whatever more substantially more than should ever have been expected of you as the teacher of the workshop. And then because of that, I became very, my defense mechanism became very sort of uh, standoffish, cold, even arrogant in many ways. And so I want to publicly apologize for my faults that I sort of maybe took out on you in some way. Which I don't remember, remember at all. Um, but the Fine. thing is, by the, end of the work, by the end of the workshop, you'd come around. 
I did. I mean, I, I have nothing but fond memories of the workshop, uh, except for my own actions. I believe I did, you know, had poor expectations when I entered it. Uh, and I, and I did some things that were probably a bit arrogant and selfish and all kinds of stuff, but, uh, it doesn't matter to me. You, you made the journey. You, um, you, you came to realize that, that what we were doing was worthwhile in the, yeah. I mean, I, I have nothing but fond memories at this point, uh, you know, in hindsight at, the, at least, except for the uh, the way that I f felt bad for my own actions. Apology accepted. Lovely. Okay. That's okay. So let's get to the nitty gritty of this. So I'm doing this podcast about the fact that I've been in academia for many years and I'm no longer full-time in academia and I'm trying to be more active in the arts world, the arts industry market, whatever word you want to put to it. And I'm trying to find out how it all works uh, from the people who have been practicing in it. And you know, one of the first people that popped in my head, of course, was you, because not only have you been doing it, but you've been doing it for a very long time, nothing personal, <laughs> but you've been doing it on a professional level for a very long time. So it starts with the question of, you know, how did you even sort of get in? Like, so, I mean, I remember when your first book came out, but you had been doing it far even before that. So I know you and I went to the same school. We both went to the SFAI, but then how did you get that first interest, that first gallery, that first, whatever, like, what was that like as a young artist? Okay. Now there, the, I have a description that's quite precise because I'd been working with the 8x10 since 1970 about. And I, it had never occurred to me that I could make a living with it, that my art would be anything more than anonymous, because I loved doing it so much. And I, and I worked other jobs to make ends meet and feed the cat, which was important because the cat had informed me that if I didn't feed it, it would kill me in my sleep. So I was kind of at my wit's end, and I decided that the thing to do would be to go to New York with a portfolio of my work and visit galleries. So I went to New York with my portfolio case in one hand and my heart in the other, and visited some 12 galleries or so on some of them on the, on the appointed Thursday when they look at new work at yada yada. And I didn't have a resume because I thought my pictures were good, and I, I was so naive about the fact that Art galleries, gallerists, um, the people that run them, don't know really what to do with work that's outside the box that they're familiar with. And, and that, that was my work for sure. And so I just got soundly rejected. And a number of galleries didn't even look at the work just because I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any lines in the resume, et cetera, et cetera. So I went back home promising myself I'd never do that again because that was a painful experience. It was so disappointing wasn't easy for me to afford then to, to do the trip. But a couple of years later, at a point in time when I was starving, I hit on an ad in the back of a local public called Art Week, a lo local publication called Art Week. And uh, it said, photo contest, cash prizes. I thought, hmm, I'll try that. And I won it. So I thought, okay, a check for $500 came in the mail. And I was, over the moon, that was a month's rent for me then, a little more than a month's rent. So I was living in San Francisco. I decided to enter a bunch of them. And I pretty quickly started learning things. I learned that the art contests that are 
arrive with a big fancy prospectus with the names of a hundred prestigious jurors and stuff like that. They're making their money from their, their entries because they're, they're getting thousands of people to enter and they weren't worth doing. State fairs were not worth doing. Any place that needed you to send the pictures framed was, was not worth doing. What was worth doing was looking at who the juror was. If it was one person and that person was interesting, then that was worth doing. So I won a competition in Philadelphia and had a gallery call me up saying, we like these pictures that were published as a result of having won. We'd send us some slides. I sent slides and he said, I'm going to, I'm canceling my next two shows. I'm going to do a show for a two month show for you. I was the Paul Cava gallery. If I remember details correctly and God knows I might not, maybe that was a one month show. doesn't matter. That show sold out very quickly. And within a matter of weeks, I had four more galleries on the, on the East Coast wanting to represent me. And then I was second place in a, in a competition in San Francisco, the last one I entered. And that got collectors coming to my house to buy work. And the, the owner of a gallery downtown named Joe Fulberg, Vision Gallery, he saw that a lot of his collectors were bringing in work to be framed that he hadn't sold. So he called me up and said, I want to see you down here. I said, Joe, I showed you my work a year ago and you dropped cigar ashes on it and said you didn't know anything about it. And he ended up being, I I eventually relented after a year and formed a partnership with him that was wonderful. I loved him more than my own father. A really wonderful man who opened his gallery because he loved his son. People weren't showing his son's work. And Joe said, "What's, what's so hard? It's just business. And he was a great, great guy, great guy. So that's what cracked the nut for me. Um, and it also got me lines in the resume. But what I liked about the process so much is that when you drop those things off at the post office and they sailed off into the dark, there was hope in your heart all day long. And when you had a bunch of them out there, I, w- I was being proactive. I was doing something and it worked. I was lucky that it worked. Learning, and I've since then juried a bunch of competitions here and there. And what I had learned was that to follow the prospectus's suggestions to the letter, be very clean and clear in how you present the work. Because I'd have it, th- I'd do a competition, there'd be a thousand submissions, and I'd have to eliminate stuff on almost any criteria to try to narrow it down. So that's what worked for me. It's almost like the movie cinema style of way of getting it done. Like, because one of the things that I keep think running into is, is like that kind of beautiful, serendipitous, almost romantic visual you know, ability to like get a gallery to pick you up and to get you know to win in these awards and stuff is very, very difficult to attain now. It is. I mean, gallerists are gamblers. If they have three bad shows in a row, I don't care what gallery that is, that's, that, they're in trouble. And I appreciate what they do for me hugely. That being said, I've had bad experiences with galleries too, where work has, has disappeared and I've not been paid and things like that. So it's, it's important to have some sense of how well-respected a gallery is by the artists they represent, if you're considering to being taken on by one. It's also very important to send your work in a professional way that's it's with a, a list of images that includes a photograph of the image and that you get a copy of that list back from them stating that the copy of the the, this, the condition of all the pictures is perfect failing to do any of these things and people can take what then the pictures disappear 
many galleries are wonderful. They're terrific. They're honest as the day is long. I'd say the, the vast majority, but there's some pretty unsavory um, people in operation out there. I'm not going to mention names. I don't want to get sued. And I don't want you to mention any names, but so but I'm what I'm more interested in is the good relationships that you've had with with galleries, like because one of the things that like I think about when it comes to gallery relationships is it's not just making the relationship, but it's it's perpetuating it, nurturing it, and growing it over time. Are there any things that you found worked well for like keeping a gallery or, or, you know, even growing to bigger galleries or more galleries? Like what were some of your things that you experienced through that relationship? Well, I'll mention the Paul Cava gallery in Philadelphia, which was the first gallery that took me. Paul is a, a remarkably good artist in his own right in photography. Uh, his work is, is amazing. And with him, it was possible to have substantive conversations all the time and and he wasn't right about everything necessarily he liked one picture for an announcement that i thought was the wrong picture and he never sold a copy of it but mostly he was very very intelligent in what he added to what i was doing so it, it increased my knowledge of what i was up to myself i mean there are galleries in the history of the art of, of the arts who've been immensely important to their artists and tom meyer in san francisco who is past having a gallery when he took me on. Um, he's a private dealer, an immensely intelligent, wonderful guy who really made, he said really important things to me from time to time. It was just at the right moment. And Cava in, in Philadelphia, the Photographs Do Not Bend Gallery in Texas was, was similarly useful. Photo Eye uh, in Santa Fe has been super good too. So, those relationships have been super, super good for me. Plus, some some foreign galleries as well have been have been great. Yeah, I mean, how is it working these days? Like, because I know you you've been in galleries since what early '80s, I would say. So now we're talking almost forty years working with the galleries. How has the the dynamic of the gallery changed? Like, so it you it was one way, and of course now there's art fairs and social media and all these other things. Like, so how has the not just the relationship, but sort of the activities of the gallery changed and evolved. Well, the the world's become a very difficult place for galleries and a lot of closed. I've lost easily um, 10 or 12 galleries that are just gone. And my work is selling much less now, but it's not a surprise at all. I totally expected that to happen because I, I'm not a new thing to collectors and gradually that my prices have inched up. And I've, I've tried to keep my work at the affordable end of the, the scale with a slightly larger edition to compensate. But for like Sally Mann's work sells for 25000 I think you can't even, unless you're a foundation or a museum, you can't even buy one, which is not undeserved. Her work is magnificent. I, I'm in awe of her. She's a good friend. But most photographers tend to get about a 10-year ride in the gallery world where they're new, they're exciting, everybody wants one, they're talked about. But at the end of 10 years, that begins to sort of fade. And a lot of photographers, uh, Paul Caponegra comes to mind towards the end of their life, didn't have much money until they got so close to dying that people said, oh, we better get some now, and at which point the money was as useful as it could have been. Well, he, another, that's another photographer that influenced me, a wonderful guy. So galleries, um, now I'm not selling so many prints. There's a few galleries that have been constant and, and I do still sell work so I don't lose hope altogether. But I'm also, I don't mind 
because I'm 73 now and I don't have that many more pictures left to take. I've taken the vast majority of what I will do in my lifetime already. I can't carry the eight by 10 anymore. I've got problems with my back. It, uh, cause I, my load going to the beach or going anywhere to work was about 75, 80 pounds. I remember. Yeah. You see, you were there, so you saw it. Yeah, you had two assistants helping as well. Right. and But I carried, I always carried the camera and some of the film. I carried as much as I could, basically. So now I'm, I'm sort of semi-retired, but I'm still working, except for COVID, of course. It doesn't as we work. all are. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I'm still selling prints occasionally and enjoying it. But I'm very lucky in that my wife is a physician, so I'm not going to starve. So I've also been extraordinarily lucky in the fact that the, the ride that I've had from the art world has been close to 40 years long, as opposed to just 10. But I don't let that, I don't let myself be flattered by that particularly, because I think the fact that my work is about the body and the interest in the body is universal. It's, um, it, that does not wane. And I'm hoping that my work succeeds in the process of convincing or explaining to people, helping them understand that the bodies belong to real people because they see my models evolve, they see them becoming parents, they see them getting older, and they realize that I have a responsibility to them and for them. So there's a relationship there. The word relationship is at the center of what I do. And anyway, I'm, I'm kind of wandering, sorry. Oh, no, it's perfectly fine. The podcast, part of the fun of a podcast is that people can tell very long and elaborate stories because it doesn't cost money or anything like this or whatever. So if generally, if people are listening to this podcast, they're probably interested in what you have to say. So they'll gladly hear a long and sordid story. So yeah, have fun with it. Okay, well, there's, got, there's some great stories behind some of my pictures I love telling. I have one question, and then I would love to hear those stories, which is how about the nature of the books? Um, because I mean, you've got some, you've had very... I what I would consider like a variety of books, like your first two books, I felt like were sort of just groundbreaking, sort of like, oh my gosh, how can this be made? These are amazing, all this. And then you, you continued to make your books pretty consistently, but then you did the, the what was it? Was it called MIT, the, the large scale book? Yeah, 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 it's a German book. Tell me, I want to know a little bit about how that book came about because it's, it's you know, a sumo book. It's massive. It, it's possibly one of the biggest photography books ever done. It's, it's turned out to be an immensely bad thing to drop on your foot. It's huge. Yeah, no, the, the man who runs Gallery Vive, which is the editor, the publisher um, of this book and other, and other many other very fine uh, photo books, is Alex Schultz, Alexander Schultz. And he's crazy. He's completely nuts. He also drives faster than anybody I've ever driven with and scared me half to death. Don't ever get in a sports car with him. I will remember that. In any case, he said, well, Jock, what's your perfect book? And I said, well, I've always dreamed about doing something big so that people for a relatively inexpensive price could own a, a substantial number of my pictures in the size that, that I like them to be seen. He said, okay, we do that. Uh, it took more conversation than that. He's an architect and he made all his money in architecture and use that money to publish beautiful books because he loves beautiful books. Nice. So that's what brought that into being. It's so expensive to build and make, and all the sheets have to be hand-gathered one at a time in a huge warehouse to get in the right order. 
And the exterior of it is wood, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's three laminations of plywood covered in cloth. And it took a huge amount of just science to find a book whose covers could be rigid enough. So I think it's kind of an albatross around his neck because it really is huge. It's, it's not a coffee table book. It's a coffee table. It's a big thing. But the printing is beautiful. And the printing is interesting because the printer, and this is in the former East Germany, he had just a one color press and he had to print the the colors one color at a time and then put all the sheets back through the press each time. And so he was, he was doing additive printing where the, the colors would change when the new color came in, et cetera. But this man is such a genius that he's actually consulted with constantly by big presses that are that, where they have big complex problems come up because he just knows how to do it. And he works at night and very strange human being, but a terrific printer. So the book is gorgeously printed, really, really pretty. When you've worked with Steidel and some of the other great publishing houses and print places that are sort of are in the photo industry. I mean, Steidel is remarkable to work with. He's the best in the world, just bar none. And it's a massive compliment to me that he likes me as much as he does. I, I can't quite get why. Like, how could I be a member of the same club this guy's in? Yeah, don't knock it. Just enjoy it. No, I do. I do. His process is fascinating. And I want him to live forever because he'll never be another one like him. So the, doing those books was a great pleasure. And I printed, what, four or five books with him. Four, maybe just four. And my first books with Scalo out of Zurich were printed by Steidel. Oh, okay. So we've got a long history. I've also printed with Aperture, but Aperture, they were always kind of rummaging through the world to find the least expensive printer possible in Hong Kong. So that was actually, I got a better tour of the globe out of Aperture. But my problem with the terse to Aperture books is that I and, a, and an editor from Aperture had spent a weekend at her house in upstate New York editing that book. We got it to write where we liked it and got a name for it the last day of summer. But then Michael Hoffman just tore it apart and put it back together again. He was more interested in graphics than he was the fact that the, I'd sequenced the pictures chronologically so that you could see the growth and change in individuals and you weren't thinking of them as, oh, this is a different person. You turn the page, there was some logic to it. Wait a minute. So the book that's out, the one that I own and everybody else owns, is not the... It's not what I envisioned at all. Wow. Okay. And that happened again with my second book with Aperture, which was Radiant Identities, um, which was a line from a poem. And I think he misunderstood the poem. I think the poem was about death. But anyway, and it's also for me, it was too, too many trips of the tongue to the palate, Radiant Identities. But I didn't have any choice because he'd, he'd already put it in the catalog. So that, that was Michael Hoffman. He was a bit of a martinet. But once again, being published by Aperture is, is a huge privilege. Indeed. Still to this day, I mean, they still have a great reputation for making beautiful publications. Aperture has survived as a nonprofit for a very long time in, in an environment that is not easy. So, you know, nothing but admiration there. And I got to work with um, Steve, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting names all the time now, the, their production guy, and I learned an enormous amount about printing books from him, Steve Barron a terrific guy who died younger than he should have done. 
lots of great things doing all that work. Um, knowing how to press check a book is very, very important. You need to be on the press as you're working so that you can ask for corrections. And no matter how good the press is, if there's going to be some things that you know about what the images should look like that they don't. Steidel is amazing. He's, he's like, there's nobody knows more than him. So making books, you know, here's the interesting thing. As a young photographer, this is what I wanted. I wanted a book, right? And I wanted gallery shows and being in a museum would be cool, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that's kind of like the three things that one hopes for if you're young in photography. I, over the course of time, what I figured out was that the biggest reward in photography was being able to do the work. And so the galleries, the reviews, the books, the museums, all of that is like, it, it's, it's, not, it's, it's almost nothing to me compared to how much I love being in the sun working. That's the biggest reward that success has, has let me continue to be in the sun and continue to work. Doing the work is what matters to me the most, being in the sun and knowing those people, because my work is about that life that I'm living, knowing them. And you've been there and you've seen what that's like. I have. They like being in the work. You, you, you remember that, right? I remember that the entire experience of being there was the probably one of the most surreal sort of literally like I took my life and everything I was doing and I just dropped out of it for a week and I experienced a completely different world because the workshop, in case people who are listening don't know this, the workshop is at, and I'm going to mispronounce it, Montelive? Montelive, that's fine. That's good. Okay. Which is a naturalist community and to participate in the workshop, every participant must also live the life of being a resident in Montelive. And so... I remember going the first day and I was so uncomfortable because I had never done anything like that before. Mind you, I was also living in a Middle Eastern country at the time. So it was a dramatic culture shock for me to go from one to the other. Within two days, I remember being absolutely understanding and comfortable with the life and the lifestyle. It it uh, It made sense and everybody seemed perfectly accepting of everybody and everything about it. And it was really quite enlightening for me to then look back on your work that I'd already known and have a sort of a different perspective of having experienced it and even been in some of the exact same places uh, as some of the photos that I, you know, revered as a, as a young student going like, Oh, this is in the shower outside of the house and all this. And, uh, that I was actually get to be there and, and see the the people living there. And it was really quite um, enlightening for me. It is an eye-opener, especially for Americans who are very confused about all things sexual because it's not a sexy context, context at all. Not at all. Like, I'm all about sexy in my own work, but, like, it, there was no – there was nothing sexual about the experience at all, period, just – there was nothing. It was just living, and that's it. Um, so, yeah. What was stunning you was the absence of shame. People who Absolutely. were living without any shame at all, they, they don't even think that way. We all, we all can relate to having someone open the door on us when we're in the toilet, right? That's embarrassing. But in, in Montelive, in that context, people who have born, been, spent their whole life that way, they just say hi. They're not embarrassed at all. They're just human beings sitting there. Clothes or not, no clothes is so much less important. 
So you get so working in that without the without the clue of clothing, you don't know when in history the picture was taken. So you end up making a document that's true in a way that has that stretches in both directions on the human spectrum much further than what we can do if we're limited by what the person's wearing that that will date the picture to within minutes of this day and age. Maybe hairstyles, but that's that'd be about it. That's actually an issue. It's an issue that's been hard for me because a lot of women now are shaving their sex completely, which I think infantilizes them. And so I'm, I'm finding that I'm trying to, I'm avoiding that straight on view because it's just a little bit too much information. It's not that I love pubic hair. I, I'm neutral about it, but its absence disturbs me. Yeah, I just had the same conversation with my wife a couple of days ago, and uh, yeah, it's the the shave the adult woman shaving feels awkward. And then occasionally in Montalive, because it's a big place, the summer population is about thirty thousand people. You'll see men also shaving their privates, and that seems even stranger to me for some reason. Just just the whole very notion of a of a razor blade down in that that region of the, the geography. Uh, makes me really nervous, <laughs> but I'm not sure what what what's going on. It seems a little bit strange, but it's it's conforming to the norm, and the norm is that people do that. And so, people in my work when they were younger, I thought when they grow up they'd never do anything like that. They're all doing it, so that will date the work. That will date the work, and maybe maybe some tattoos will too. But sometimes I'll take them out in Photoshop. Oh yeah, tattoos. I never even thought about that. I don't remember ever seeing any tattoos in any of your photos. My goddaughter Fanny had a had a, a piercing. That's what she didn't have a tattoo. She had a piercing. That I, I hate piercings. That's just me though. That's that's just my taste. That's nothing to do with what everybody else did. For the people that like them, more power to them. But I had a beautiful picture of her leaning against a railing, and there was a, a nose piercing in it that just had to go away. And now she's kind of glad because she was she's embarrassed by that point. Anyway, I've wandered all over the map there. Sorry. It's okay. Okay. You had mentioned that you wanted to talk about some of your favorite photos and some experiences of them. I have one that I've always wondered about and I can never, I've never, I can't even find it because I don't know what the title of it is, but I'm sure if I describe it, you'll know it. <laughs> I've, I've had people say, well, I, I saw one of your pictures. It was a girl on the beach. Oh, come on. I'm better than that. I can be honest. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I believe, if I remember correctly, it's actually your wife in the shower um, folded over forward shaving her legs. Shaving her leg, right. Yeah. The the shapes and the forms in that image are – they. when I remember seeing them when I was uh, found your book for the first time, I remember sitting in class because my teacher had brought in – I believe that was last days of summer – and I was just transfixed by like the beautiful composition, the light, the curves. There was it was none of that. None of there's no pose there at all. But what, what, what there is, that's what I call a don't move a graph. I saw that. And I said, don't move, don't move. Now you've seen the side of my house. I've got a nice light that comes in from the from the west there in the in the later in the day. I've got open shadows earlier in the day that work for me well as well. And there's a white building just op opposite, which, which gives a lot of fill. So it's an easy place to make pictures. And so I very often set the camera up there. I've got another picture of it where there are four people, four women 
Uh, one of them is my wife. She's looking in the mirror. And four women basically doing their morning toilet. One, one girl's shaving another girl's leg. It was the first time the girl who was standing having her leg shaved had ever had it done. And another was in the shower rinsing shampoo out of her hair. And there was Maya in the mirror. It was a little... But to get that picture, I took 50 bad ones, 50 that didn't quite work as well, which is one of photography's compelling mysteries we can talk about eventually. Feel free. That, that I mean, that's something... We, especially with digital photography and cell phone photography and all the other stuff, I feel like everybody seems to think you can get a great photo very quickly and easily these days. And and I personally, I'm still of sort of your closer to your generation for sure of the belief that quality takes time and it takes a lot of mistakes and learning from your mistakes in order to get better and so on and so on. Yeah, there, but there's two levels to that. One of the reasons that quality takes time is that you need to practice. You need to sharpen the stick. You need to be good with your materials so that if luck happens by, you're ready for it. I'm a strong believer in not using light meters and just understanding the light well enough so that you basically you shoot and you're done. Right? Uh, now, to do color work, I do use light meters because the, there isn't the latitude for error there, that there isn't black and white. So the mechanical side of it, but the mechanical side of photography is 1% of the difficulty of making a good picture. It's a trace element, which is not an, if it's not on our diet, we die. Okay. You have to have technique. You have to know what you're doing with the camera. You have to have, and to do that, you have to practice like a lot. And you know something, the art, art world doesn't care if you don't. There's some of they'll, cause they'll turn their attention to someone who does simple as that. So work hard or, or go home. The hard part in photography is what's in front of your camera. What do you know about it? I think in seeing me work, I hope at least, did I work in front of your group? Yes. I stayed late and actually I, was, I saw two uh, shoots that you did. Okay. So what I'm shooting isn't just that person there. It's the fact that I've known her uh, or him for 10 years, 12 years or whatever. And I'm photographing their kids now, et cetera, a second, third generation. Um, they're people whom I care about deeply and whom I'm profoundly lucky to have posing for me. And they're not, but they're not really even posing. They're just being there. And the best pictures always come from something they do themselves. Always. There's a kind of tyranny that borders on misogynistic in the way men order women around to take their pictures. Do this, do this. Um, all these photographs that result basically are a veil of male imagination on, that's been thrown over a decent human being who probably would never have done those things on her own. So they're not true pictures. They're, they're, they're an artifact. And that's, that's harsh. I'm not going to in, in, indict the entire world of photography that way. There's lots of photographers that do, do well and care. Peter Lindbergh was a very good example of that. The models all adored him because he cared about them and his pictures are, are wonderful because of it there was a relationship there so that's that's the hard part is knowing what's in front of your camera now and that's what i'm we're talking about people but the subject whatever subject you have in front of your camera what do you know about it well within that something else that i always found interesting about your work is that they the location and the lights, like you continually shoot in the same place decade after decade or places, so like locales, so like the, the Montelive, Northern California, all these places, and you know them those locations so well. 
that you don't, you barely even need to sort of plan it. So like just having that consistency of the relationship, even with the quality of the light, knowing the light at the time of day, the time of year, all those kind of stuff, what's going to be growing where, what the, the trees are going to look like and all this kind of stuff. Like you chose to sort of, and I apologize if it comes off wrong, like repeatedly use the same place over and over instead of going to new locations. Why did you choose that? Because it took forever to learn the light where I was. <laughs> I started working on beaches in Block Island um, on the East Coast. And there I got my education on what not to do. Because I did lots of what you don't do. <laughs> in terms of misjudging exposures, misjudging time of day, misjudging the sentiments of the models. Not that so much, but still, I was photographing, at the beginning there, I was photographing strangers, people I didn't know. And my work educated me because consistently the best pictures were people I'd known a little bit or more. And the more I knew them, the better the pictures got. And the more I knew them, the, ha the more I liked them, the more they liked me and the happier they were when the pictures were good. And they figured out pretty quickly that they didn't have to pose, that it would be at the end of the shoot when they were, you know, when they were scratching their nose and picking, up, picking something up or something. I said, don't move. And I'd get this natural gesture. I, I think of it as awkward grace that for me is all the grace in the world, the natural things that people do that you can't tell them to do. It just doesn't work. Or if you do, you're throwing away the truth of what the beauty that's before you. So when, it, when you have a picture that happens and that's worked really well, it's an ecstatic moment. It's really an ecstatic moment. And the model feels it too. And it's very important, you'll remember this, to talk to the model and convey what you're feeling as you're working. And if you convey excitement like that, they're well-fed. They're very well-fed. They love it. You can change the life of the people you're working with. I have a number of stories about pictures that did exactly that. How it completely, it completely it reified the models in such an important way as to their self-image, et cetera, that it, they, they were a different person. I'm interested that you seem to, as you say, you repeatedly go back to people again and again. It seems like a lot of photographers, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, don't have the sort of the muses or, or the, those people that they make these long-term relationships with to make growth and, and better images over time and all this kind of stuff. So like, so you cho have chosen to sort of create these muses, more or less, that you, you continually go back to, you know, Fanny and, of course, and all the others. What do you think about the fact that that's not as common these days? It makes me sad. But there's, in, in art photographers I've met online, and I love to surf and find someone whose work I think is much better than they realize and then start corresponding with them. And I've actually published 16 books for young photographers. Um, helped publish through Gallery Beauvais. And that's terrific fun for me. And and I do it. I'm pure self-interest in doing it. Why do you think I do it? Uh, to pass on your knowledge to the next generation. Nah, I want to see the pictures. I want to see, I want to see what they'll do. Yeah, I remember you introduced me to Alain Labois. Labois. Alain Labois. Alain Labois. Yeah, he came by one day while we were there. Very, very strong photographer who is no longer my friend. Uh, but that's a, that's a long story I won't get into. I don't admire him the way I did before. You know, Alain was, I, I did a book with him, connected him with collectors. I gave him a good 35 millimeter Canon lens. I gave him a, Mac, a Macintosh tower computer. I, I did everything I could to help him with his work. 
and then he disappointed me quite profoundly. So, but the work is still good. I have to say that his work is wonderful. It's inventive, it's, it's original, and it's just devilishly clever very often. He was a fascinating guy, I mean, because I remember he came from sculpture, if I remember correctly, before he got into photography. No education in photographic arts at all, and doesn't, didn't know who Stieglitz was or anybody. Doesn't matter. He's, he's um, a diamond in the rough. All right. So going back to your profound changes that images affected the models, I'd love to hear that. Okay. Well, I'll give you one example, um, my favorite. Uh, and I'm sorry I don't have the image somehow to show the world. I will be happy to put a link to it or put it on the post when I put this out. Not if it's online because I wouldn't have permission from that family right now. Fair enough. Okay. I have a model named Nicole, whom I started with quite young at Model Eve. They're a German family and very, very tall, Frisians. And Nicole hated herself. They showed me her class picture and it was like, kid, kid, kid. And then Nicole, like a half a kid taller than everybody else there. And then it looked like a picket fence with somebody put a pole in the middle. So Dieter was a major in the German army, big, powerful man with a mustache. And you, you meet Dieter and you think, how did we win the war? Kind of a supermensch. Very nice guy. Very nice guy. Great dad. And it killed him that his daughter didn't like herself because she really didn't. She walked, she walked with a stoop with her hair, with her head forward and her hair in her face. And she was embarrassed to exist because she was so tall. So they stopped coming to Montalivet, but they went to a nature's place that's up the coast a bit and um, called Euronat, which caters more specifically to Germans almost as big as Montaliva is. I went up there to photograph her because I tried to keep things going every summer one day. And I knew I was going to have a very short shoot because there was a big thunderstorm off the coast grumbling away. The, the Medoc Peninsula is famous for its thunderstorms. And it was a big one out there. So we went to the beach and I said to Nicole, just go over there. And she's about 16, 16, almost 17. And I, I fuss with the camera, which is what I do. I turn my back on my models. I don't want to influence what they do at all. Um, and I fidgeted with the camera. The camera was all set up. And I turn around, and she's laying down on her back in some tidal pools with her head towards me and one knee bent. And I take one look at it with my eyes direct, not looking through the camera, and I go, that's going to look really well. And on the, on the ground glass, it was a, it was a miracle because it was upside down, and it made it look like she was flying yeah. Um, and I was just like, I was incredibly effusive. I was so happy with what I was seeing. I knew it was going to be one of the best pictures that I had done that year, maybe in quite a few years, um, which turned out to be true. So I shot three frames and it started to rain. So we pelted like crazy for the house and uh, for their caravan. And it rained like the end of the world, the way summer thunder showers do. Cleared off finally. And we put all the tables together from the neighbors and theirs, and they had a big, long evening dinner, al fresco, under the stars, and with maybe 30 people. And that was one of the things that happens in France that's so pleasant, so wonderful. The kids are taking off and running around. And at one point during the meal, uh, I mentioned to Dieter that I don't think you'd ever find an American army major in a nature's camp. And he put his arm around this little fat man next to him and says, well, this is nothing. He's my general. 
So great. So 11 o'clock shows up. And as you know, I've got to get back into Montalive before the gate closes. So I'm packing up. It's very dark because even though it has stopped raining, it was overcast. And only, the only light is the light in the, in the back of my car, in the trunk of the car as I'm putting stuff gear in. And here comes Dieter, the father, out of the gloom. And he's marching up to me like with a really serious expression on his face. And I realize as he gets closer and I can see him a little better, he's crying. And he walks right up to me, this huge, powerful man. And he grabs my hand, my head with both his hands. And I really thought I was about to die for some reason I didn't understand, right? And he gives me two big kisses like this. Mwah, mwah. I've never been kissed by a scratchy man like that before. My sympathy to women. And he said, Nicole just told me that she thinks that she's beautiful after all. And starting the next day, she started walking around upright. And I got a very funny postcard from Dieter saying that he had overheard two boys saying, have you seen that new girl just down just like around the corner there? She's amazing. She's like a goddess. And she'd been there for weeks. They hadn't noticed her. She'd been invisible. So uh, Charis Weston, the first time she posed, uh, Charis was before she was Weston. Um, first, first time she posed for um, Edward Weston, it totally changed her life. In her, in her biography, she talks about how she walked out of the studio because he didn't tell her what to do. He said, just do whatever you like. And, and was verbal about being happy and admiring it. He, he fed her and it changed her life. It completely, she, she thought that compared to her friends who had cute little bobby haircuts that were typical for the age and were just like all the same, she, she towered over them. She was long and lanky and uh, an original thinker. And she hadn't liked herself up until that moment. And she adored herself from that moment forward. So photographers have the power when you're working to do some real good with your models, to help them understand. We had a model in the workshop who was born with a, a physical deformity. Do you remember that? I do. She was in my workshop, yes. And I'll just call her Kay to preserve her identity or her anonymity. She didn't want to do the workshop because she felt that she was kind of weird and she wore her hair really long to keep herself covered up and was on balance depressive and not a very happy person. But if you gave her half a chance to be happy, she was the sweetest person you ever met. So her friends talked her into modeling and she turned out to be the workshop's favorite model. And she just lit up like a Christmas tree. She was so, she was so changed from that moment forward. I do remember the beginning of the week where she was very shy and very covered, basically. And by the end of the week, she was very confident and smiling more um, and much more uh, just generally confident uh, of what she was doing. That, that difference is there to make with anybody you photograph. Something that you mentioned a little earlier that I, because again, sort of the podcast is a lot about sort of the business of the arts also. So like, have you had difficulty because of the subject matter in relation to the internet? The internet is, is not the best thing in the world for me. And it's, it lets more people see my images than might have been the case. But the problem is that my work is pirated all the time. For inappropriate reasons, I'm sure. Yeah. And also, I'm very concerned with what's happening with, with websites that have censorship built into their design, the way, the way Facebook does. And Instagram. And Instagram. And, and um, Instagram is not quite as severe as Facebook's. But it's a pure. It's a it's a leaning towards puritanical thought, 
that I think is changing people's sensibility about the body and them and their own bodies their, their, themselves. Oh, it absolutely is. Facebook has been kind of good for me in a way. I've enjoyed the community of friends I have here. And I enjoy seeing work that I would might never have seen otherwise, especially out of um, the former Eastern Bloc, out of Russia. And there's wonderful, wonderful photographers working there that we know almost nothing about. So uh, I enjoy that a lot. And But uh, but the censorship, basically, I'm about 3% of my work can go on can go online there. Right. I mean, that's what I was thinking. You you mentioned that, first of all, you have to have model releases that allow, A, for you to use them for your own artwork, but then there's sort of a, a different level of model release to be able to allow for your, your images to be used on the internet, I'm sure. And then, of course, there's the barriers on the internet for through censorship and stuff. That I don't publish my nudes on the internet at all. So anybody seeing them there, it wasn't me that put them there. And usually if I become aware of it, I try to get them taken down because they contravene my agreement with the families I'm working with. And in, and in one case, cost me a very important model for my work, whose, whose family was shocked to see her picture reproduced on the internet. I got it taken down, but their damage was done. And it wasn't put up by me. Right. I mean, this is something that I noticed when we were at the workshop and also when you sort of spoke with us as well, is that you truly make these like strong connections, not just often with the models, but with the models' families. Uh, and I thought it would be in the family equally, equally as well. So I'm not sending messages that I think she's beautiful and, he, and she's not. So the social work that I do as a photographer, that's where I spend 99% of my time is is knowing these people going out to dinner with them we stand and talk about our kids and the edge of the sand watching them try to kill themselves in the ocean um, we have long conversations that's part of what i like so much about french culture is there is so much emphasis on that kind of social behavior people being with each other talking having substantive conversations caring about aesthetics talking about life, there's a lot of, the French are taught a lot of philosophy and they have interesting minds and they care about the family process. Their kids don't go to the mall. If they go to the mall, they all go. And the kids come home, many places the kids come home from school so they can have their noon meal at home. Um, and meals last hours. In French schools, there's an hour given for lunch, right? And good food. The teachers have wine. I mean, it's a totally different way of living. That, that considers the texture of our lives to be what we have to enjoy and make beautiful, which we don't do. We're too, we're too, much, too, much, too much worried about car payments and, and having more things. Yeah. I mean, as a creative person, I'm more interested in having time than money. Like, like you were saying earlier with the, the, basically the production of your artwork and the publishing of the books and the exhibitions basically afforded you the time and space to be able to make your work. Exactly. Exactly. So, and it's been fun. I've had a terrific time. I, I'm, I have zero regrets. Are you still running workshops? I haven't taught one in a while. If I suddenly think of an artist I want to mention, I can't remember the name anymore. Um, and so I wonder how good a teacher I'd be in that in that way. So that's a concern. I, I the last workshop I taught went very very well for most of the people in it, but one or two people I was cranky with, and that in retrospect I'm really embarrassed that I was a bad teacher for those people. 
I still keep in touch with some of the people that were in the workshop and we all still have very fond memories of it. So it wasn't our group that you were, you had that problem with. No, definitely not. That, that was a terrific workshop. And you were a good person in that workshop. Way too hard on yourself. You were adapting to a completely novel environment. The one thing that I, I, I really didn't appreciate from you at, at the end, it was literally, I believe, the last day, and you took all of the models that we had available to us and threw them in one location and just said, okay, make something interesting with six models. And I had never worked with more than two ever in my entire career at, in one photograph. So what was the problem for you? You had no control over six people, did you? I had no idea what to even do with them. Like I just, it was too, too many variables for me. And I was just like, oh my God, what do I do with all this? And it was very difficult. The, the whole point of that was to let you see what happens when you're not controlling them. When, you, when they're just reacting with each other and sitting down and talking and doing whatever they're doing, because that's where all the beauty is. The models were fabulous. They they knew not to do anything. Like so they were they were great. But yeah, it it was very overwhelming for me. The 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 sheer volume. I think it was I think it was six models or five, but regardless, it was substantially more than the two maximum I had ever used before. So Right. Well the whole point is the models will seek out their relationships with each other and and they'll relate to each other the way that's I mean, they all know each other very well and had for a long time. And so it's really fun to see that dynamic because you can't invent it. You show up as a photographer and you say, you stand here, you stand there. And they go, why would I stand next to her? I mean, she dissed me last night, right? And whatever. Which happened, yes. Yeah, it did. So would you suggest that I not do that with, with students? No, not at all. I'm just saying it was the one thing that really, really like, well, beyond the obvious of me having to be naked while taking pictures of naked people. That was the other obvious. You, you were so cute naked. It was fun. I mean, it really was, <laughs> especially coming from the Middle East. So like, I, you know, I've never publicly said this before, but the, the, the one little cunning plan fun for me about the entire experience was that I got my muslim government employer to pay for me to go participate in your workshop okay and that's 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 on the air for the, the whole world to hear now you realize uh, it's fine i don't live there anymore <laughs> <laughs> i had a very very good photographer who's become quite a good friend since who was incredibly clever at at composing his pictures his eye for design was exquisite and his pictures as a result had very evolved static and intent and intentional dynamics to them the architecture of his pictures was really something but that rode roughshod over identity he was presenting a lovely face and a beautiful ground with the shadows controlled perfectly and he was one of the best photographers i've ever had in a workshop but he wasn't letting the models be themselves and so i stopped him in the middle of some work at one point and I said hey guys there was three sisters he was shooting i said go over and just go over there and do whatever you want. Like, I got to talk to this guy. And so they went and a couple of them sat on the log and I said, okay, there's your picture. And he got it. He got it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, your style of, you know, sort of basically creating a situation or a location, you know, light and all the qualities and then sort of simply allowing life to happen in that space is somewhat unique in the photographic industry. I mean, most people 
in the photography industry construct and build and create uh, an image whereas your attention your attention your intention is to document something in a you know in a beautiful location basically the models do all the work for me and that's that's why my pictures are always titled with their names and they're the people that that own the pictures before anybody else does i give them all i give them all prints of every picture when i was working with the 8x10 now i give them thumb drives with all their photographs on them which actually i was going to ask so are you still shooting 8x10 i am just a teeny bit but i got the camera out the other day and i was appalled by how heavy it had gotten i, I need to put it on a diet or something working with a digital camera that works so well that i'm really happy with the results what have you ended up with because when i first saw, when i was there you had just finished the roly project I've since done a Leica project with them and with, and with the camera is a Leica medium format S007. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a license to kill, but I haven't used that yet. And the lenses for it are hellishly expensive. The camera's hellishly expensive. It's like $50,000 for a camera and three lenses. <laughs> Excuse me, 50,000 euros. Still, that's ridiculous. Yes, that's very it, expensive. It was given to me. I could never have afforded a camera like this. And... It's incredibly sharp. It's a 37 megapixel camera, so it's not that high in megapixels, but I can make prints as, as big as any of my 8x10 prints that have no grain and really astonishing detail. If, if, I, if I have an issue with it, it's that the sharpness of the pictures overwhelms my senses a little bit. And so, whereas as a, as a working photographer, I like making pictures that are well in focus. I, I got a little fixated on that at the beginning, and now I've backed off a little bit. I'm letting things be a little softer. But Leica makes a, a strong camera. They're really beautiful. I don't think Leica's ever not made good cameras. I mean, they're Leica. And 60% of them never have been taken out of the box. They're on, they're on mantelpieces. That is sad. People collect them. I, I've never understood that. Cameras are for taking pictures. I photographed in Ireland for 10 years and um, I was going to do a book, but that came to grief for sad reasons I won't go into. Someone pirated one of my Irish pictures and, and ran it in an ad in a pornographic comic book, which upset people where I was working a lot. They thought I'd had something to do with it, which of course I hadn't. So the book that I had permissions for never happened, but it's some of the best work I've ever done in Ireland. And as, as I've always done everywhere else in my life, I got to know some some families quite well and one family that i got to know quite well had a house that was on the on the on the edge of a of a cove the cove was man-made this is fascinating because it was man-made five thousand years ago and it was it was completely working the same as it had been designed to it, it had a very narrow opening it was round and the and the narrow opening to the sea was narrow enough that there would, there would never be waves inside the cove but also nothing alive ever inside the cove. Uh, in Irish mythology, there's a creature called a silky. Silky in the water is a seal, but should it quit the water, it becomes a naked woman. And if a man is lucky enough to find this, the, the, the pelt that's been quit, that, that she's taken off, the silky, and then hides it, the silky will come and live with him forever, unless she finds the skin, but she finds the skin then she has to, she's bound to go back to the ocean immediately and, and disappear. And the man swims after and drowns. It's a typical Irish story. I was going to say, as all mythologies end, yes. 
while we're working, I'm working against a blackberry hedge on my back to the pond. And I've got, there's like three or four kids. I'm photographing one of two twin sisters. And one of the kids says, hey, there's a seal in the cove. And I look, look around and sure enough, there's a seal and it, it's, it disappears and it comes up closer and disappears again. It comes up closer. It does that three times until it's really only about 10, 12 feet from us. And it's not moving. It's perfectly motionless. Uh, in the black, non-reflecting reflecting water of this, the cove is like a black mirror. And it's got huge brown eyes and it's just staring at us. So there, the kids are all going, there's nothing, never nothing alive in the cove. Nothing comes in here. It's just like it's dead place. So there's something, go get mom. So they send the youngest to go get the mother, which irritates him because the youngest in Irish families, um, there's 13 kids in this family, always gets the short end of the stick. As, as youngest kids always do. Right. So he has to run up to the house and comes down with the mother and the mother comes down with him scolding. He said, I don't know why you're telling me tales again. You know, I've, son, I've, I've, I've been after this a thousand times. You're, you're telling lies. You're, you're, you're not telling the truth now. You're very bold. And then she sees the seal and she goes, Oh, Jesus. And she crosses herself three times and says, I'm sorry. I doubted you. There's a seal in the go, go get granny. So he goes, oh, God, his face is like, oh, he's mad. He has to go up the hill again. So she goes, and a little while later, Granny comes down, flailing her cane and, and berating him, just as his mother had for telling, for telling tales. And then she sees the seal, and she crosses herself several times. And we're all standing there looking at it. And just out of a mad notion, I said, I turned to the mother, and I said, it's a silky, you think? And she goes, oh, you're right, Granny, it's a silky. And the, and the grandmother goes, oh, like this. And goes back up the hill as fast as she can, and the door goes bam with a thud. We all watched her go, and we turned around. The silky was does the clump; it, it was gone. We didn't see it again. And I took a picture a few minutes afterwards of one of the twins against this blackberry hedge, and her eyes are like this big; they're huge. Sure, she just saw a silky. She just well, the thing is, they all accepted instantly that it was a mythical creature. And there was an innocence in the west of Ireland then that's that's fast departing because now the kids don't wear the homespun clothes they had when I first started working there. They're wearing Nike and, and Adidas, and they just have to have the latest trainers. It's one of my favorite pictures because of the expression. Her expression was fueled by something so spectacular. It, that's the, these are the things that like a lot of people have difficulty. Like You can make a photograph, but a photograph is really a frozen moment in time, and there's always a story before it, and there's sometimes a story after it. But like, to try to somehow integrate that story with the the things, sometimes it, it takes a little bit too much effort. Like if you had to, if you wrote that whole story out next to that photograph, I'm not sure most of the public would read the entire story. Oh, there's the lot. They're lost, man. They're lost. It's a completely true story. I don't have to embellish. It's it's everything I said happened just exactly like that, and it was a lovely moment to to have lived. And I, I, and I got one great picture, but the rest of the pictures I took that day were of no great moment. The family liked them and, and they got the prints and the, they loved them. That's one of the mysteries we I, I alluded to earlier is the mystery is why are bad pictures bad and are good pictures good? Oh, yeesh. that's, that's an eternal question. It is. And the ratio of, of good pictures to bad pictures is vastly in favor of bad pictures. I think the people who are not photographers don't really understand that, is that we take far more bad pictures than we take good ones. I remember my, 
my teacher in high school always said with a roll of 36 exposure, if you got one good photo, not, not amazing, not fabulous, not your best ever, but like one good photo, then the roll was successful. Sure. Anyway, you can get to it. So with the eight by 10, I end up printing about 15% of what I shoot in terms of making, uh, accepting it into what I do. That 15% becomes a much, much, much smaller percentage earlier on when I was shooting a lot more pictures and not making as many good ones. When I started slowing down and shooting less film, I got better. What's going to happen with this? Okay, this is the thing that I actually go around in my head a lot is basically like my archives slash in negatives or, or my digital images or whatever. Like after I pass away, who will basically keep on, you know, like I'm always afraid that images of mine are going to be exhibited or published or whatever that I don't think are my best images. So do you do anything to say like, these are the ones that are, that I'm willing to put my name on and for eternity, or do you like burn negatives or like, how do you try and make it so that the, these things that uh, may not represent you well, won't ever see the light of day? Decisions not yet taken. I mean, it's, it's an issue. It's an issue and monumental because I have a vast archive. I would imagine 40 some years. Yeah. I think the least number of pictures I took in a year was two or 3000. And when you say pictures, you mean eight by 10 negative pictures. Yeah. I've got them all in fire safes because, um, I want them protected if there's an earthquake or a fire or something and they, they weigh enough to kill a man. <laughs> I'm sure. So my, my answer to that is I prefer not to think about it because I'm too busy. I'm too busy working on new things. People often ask me, what's my favorite photograph? And I say, the one I haven't made yet, because I'm always hungry for more. I've never gotten tired of what I do. But I have gotten tired year by year. Like for one year, if I've worked a lot on the beach, the next year I'll think, you know, I need to stay off the beach. I did too much of that last summer. It's too easy for me. And because if something's easy for me, that starts to make me nervous. Well, you're also a little bit different than contemporary photography. Contemporary, you know, it's so fast-paced these days with, of course, social media, updating websites, all this stuff. Like when you're working on a body of work, from what I remember about you, you worked for a couple of years before you might even come to a point of saying, yeah, this is, feels like a, a good selection of work to put together. So like these long, are, are you still doing these longer term projects? It's, it's not projects, period. It's just one. And that's what I'll, that's what I'll always do. Okay. The stop, the stopping points that are called books and exhibitions. Right. Well, I think there's maybe too many of my books in the world already. And I, I'm a little bit embarrassed. They've been part of how I pay the rent. And so the, the books themselves, there is some profit in publishing a book, but not a huge amount. Um, it's very expensive to print a good photo book. But where, where there's a benefit is that collectors like to, to collect published work. So they help, they help with print sales a lot. On, the, on balance, it's my books that will be my legacy because people in artwork, who knows where, are unlikely to have been to a museum to see work there. But they might, more, they might be more luckier in finding a book. What comes to mind is a quote by an American actor who, who was asked if he was trying to achieve immortality in his art. And he said, no, I want to achieve immortality by not dying. Yeah. But I mean, I just wonder about like you're saying like you only printed 15% of everything you shot over, you know, a, a long career. 
I would be fascinated like to see if like a curator went through it or some other eye. Like, do you have other people ever look through any of these? And, and... my assistants do a little bit, but it's you can't you couldn't look through all of them. It would take you a year. Very frequently, I go into a box looking for something that's uh, it's a negative, similar to another that we want to look at together, etc. Whatever reason, we're spelunking, and I come across stuff that I said, "Why didn't I never print this?" Well, that's sort of what I'm getting at. Is like I would imagine, with hindsight, some of those that you didn't might actually be pretty spectacular. Yeah, no, I uh, I I put a picture up on Facebook that was a nude taken from behind of a young woman sitting on a dock. It was actually a fashion model. And one I've worked with a number of times over the year, one of my favorites, um, she was in a, at a location in Northern California with me. And I made this one particular picture and had never printed it, came across it a few months ago and stuck it up on Facebook. And it's probably one of the most liked images I've ever put up there. And I thought, what, this thing? And I hadn't even thought, I thought oh, this is kind of nice, put it up. That leads to a question because I remember there was a time in your career where you did some work for, I think it was gap and a couple other companies like this never gap but wasn't um, gap yes i remember some seeing some beautiful commercial images that you did that were like interiors with a like broken walls and stuff like this and then on the beaches and things like this i saw some there as well how did that all come about because i mean you were pretty much a hardcore art photographer at that point, I believe, if I'm remembering my timeline of your career correctly. And then all of a sudden you did this commercial work. I, my fine artwork had come to the attention of a woman named Alexandra Vorodnieska, who was Polish nobility of, one, of some kind or another, an eccentric, very bright, very beautiful woman who had a magazine in Paris called Revel. And she liked specifically to work with fine art photographers. In fact, that's what she, that's, she sought to do that exclusively to kind of give her magazine a cachet that other magazines didn't have as much of. So she called me up and said she wanted to do a fashion shoot with me. And I said, well, have you looked at my pictures? There's no clothes in them. I said, I don't actually like clothes that much. She said, never mind. Showed up with a ton of clothes um, in June in Montalive. Uh, I used a few of my models and she brought a models with her. And uh, we did a fun shoot. It was, she almost killed me. She's actually almost killed me three times. She had me photographing in the rain, a driving storm, with water was coming off my camera sideways. And for with, with film holders and stuff getting wet, the slides getting wet, it was, um, she ended up using one of those photographs for the cover of the magazine, but we had to spend a lot of money for an expensive retoucher to take out all the water spots. I'm sure, <laughs> yeah. The slide had gotten wet. The model was like near death. From, she was so cold. She was wearing a very light, because you shoot, of course, you shoot spring, summer sh um, stuff in cold weather. And you spring the, you, 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 everything is backwards. So she was freezing. We went her up to the lifeguard station and, and three or four lifeguards turned all their hair dryers on her at the same time to keep her from dying on us. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was fairly dramatic. But as a result of that, an agency contacted me uh, from New York, um, a very eccentric man named Michelangelo was the head of the agency. And he flew to Paris and then came down from, he had a Paris office also, and he came down with the head of his Paris office. They flew down from Paris to to meet me in Montalive. And there was a funny story there because his assistant was a very attractive woman. She was Italian. And she was wearing a pair of Prada pants that were very, very tight. 
in which she looked very, very good. But no sooner had she gotten out of the car they rented to get to get up to us, she came to me and said, oh, I have a big problem. The zipper, she's stuck. And I really, you know, I need to use the, you know, I said, you need to go to the bathroom. I said, yes, I did, I do. Can you help me, please? Uh, I'm desperate. So I got a pair of pliers and uh, a pair of vice grip pliers. And I said, look, I can pull pretty hard with this, all right? And one of two things will happen because I had tried it manually, it was absolutely stuck. Either the zipper will open or I'll tear your pants in half. There's really kind of nothing in between. So sure enough, I tore her pants nicely in half and she ran for the bathroom. And we got her, we got her a pario, which is a wrap. It's kind of an, an Indonesian thing. Most of them are made in Indonesia just to wrap around like a towel, but it's, it, has, it goes around a couple of times. You can make dresses by tying the ends. Yeah, like a sarong. Like a sarong, yes. And she wore that while she was there. There was no naturist in her personality at all. She did not want to be anything other than clothed. So then they left, and I signed a contract with the company. And on the plane home, she went to the, to the toilet on the plane, and someone behind her stepped on the trailing hem of the of the pario, and it came off, and she didn't notice. Um, she was wearing a thong because the the pants had been so tight that you really couldn't wear anything that could be identified through the material. And uh, I think the passengers in that flight were very entertained by her. She, the way she was blushing at Maldives, she must have turned crimson. Michelangelo thought it was very funny. Yeah, it sounds like a very French Italian story. Yes. So then I started doing commercial shoots. And the first one I shot was in Santa Barbara with a, a, stylist, a, a stylist by the name of Carl Templer. And I knew nothing about doing this. I didn't really know who a stylist was or why they were there. Um, I had no clue. I'd never done this before. And early on in the shoot, this guy's going, talk, 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 talk. It's, and telling me about the, the atmosphere he's looking for and everything. And I just want to get on to making pictures. All right. So I finally turned to him and said, um, Carl, if you could just be quiet and sit over there, let's just let me work, please, okay? No one had ever said anything like that to him before, but he completely ignored me, just kept talking. I later discovered that he was like the, one of the top two or three stylists in the world. I've, heard, I've had people refer to him as a god, and he was, in fact, wonderful to work with. He was, he's very, very smart about what he does. It's hard because I try to make emotional connections with my models, and, in, in, and with, with fashion work, it's hard to get there. You don't really have time. So what I eventually, as I began doing more shoots, I started working with the same models again anytime I could, uh, because there's, there it, it was getting deeper. Uh, for my very first paid commercial shoot, um, which was for an, an English couturier, I had a model named Amanda Moore, and the stylist had warned me. She says she's kind of talky, right? When I went to pick her up at the airport, and sure enough, she had a lot to say in the car coming back but I was liking what I was hearing. She was being very clever with language. She clearly had a good education, but she was young. And I said, I suddenly said, Amanda, you didn't, you didn't get what you're talking to me about in high school. You got to me this, you've been to college. She said, how do you know? I said, because you're smart as a whip. When did you go to college? How old are you? She says, I was 12. She went to college when she was 12 or something like that. She's really young. And, 
what was going on was that she's living in the fashion world where not a lot of people maintained at that level necessarily. They're brilliant about clothes and the history of fashion, etc. There's intelligence there, um, for sure. There's profound intelligence there, but not the kind of clever intelligence that she had. So she was talking as much as she was because she was looking for an echo. We got to Monta, and I had a shoot in the evening, even though everybody was really tired from the from their international flights. Uh, we had two boys and her, and the next morning we had a technical problem and we lost the morning's work, and we thought we'd lost the night and the evening's work as well. So we had to reshoot. Uh, but that next morning she was already very very tired from having had to work right to the sea, the, the sunset. So in the morning she was dragging, and I said, "Look, in that room right there." That's my bedroom. You go in there and close the door and sleep. I'll work with the boys. So for about two and a half hours, I worked just with the two boys, until Carl suddenly said, "Wait a minute, where's Amanda?" But she just then came out of the house, stretching, and was in the best mood because she really had kind of gotten enough. Young and strong, she bounced back quickly, and I got the sweetest pictures of her. I had my goddaughter Adele posing with her, and. Other photographers who know her said, "Amanda's so tough." She tended towards black leather. How did you get these sweet pictures of her? I said, "I was nice to her." I worked with her again shortly after, and we got on like a house on fire. I made beautiful pictures of her. I asked her at the end during that first shoot, "Is there ever a picture of you that you'd like to have that you, that no one's ever taken?" And she says, "Yeah." And she referenced a movie. I forget what it was now. And there was a black a girl in a black leather jacket. And so I made that photograph for her. A simple kindness. It really matters what you put in, and who people are. It does to me, because I don't want to live my life with strangers. That's not fun. That's not interesting. Um, it's it's nicer to have people that you're close to. You're back. I'm sure there are a lot of like mid-career and young emerging artists that are photographers in particular probably listening to this. So I'm, I'm interested in just because I know you and I know you probably have some great sort of words of advice of how, you know, how to uh, build a good career because you have a nice long, you know, lifelong career, which is not as common these days. And I would like to encourage more creative people to try and build lifelong careers. Aspiring photographers want to be famous. That's pretty much they'd like they'd like to be famous, which puts the cart before the horse. Because if you seek fame before you have skill, you're not going to get anywhere. the The hardest thing about photography is that you have to make a choice. And there are so many things about the world that are fascinating and 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 attractive that making that choice isn't easy. Because sticking with one thing. At the expense of all the other things, the aggregate, the aggregate desirability of all the other things that are out there, is hard. But you do have to choose. It's one of the. It's the hardest part in photography is what your subject will be, understanding what that needs to be, because it must pretty much be one thing. A great photographer like Stieglitz, he had maybe three important separate bodies of work, but that's the exception, not the rule. So you've got to make a choice. But how do you get there? Do you make a conscious choice? Well, that turns out to be complicated because maybe you're wrong, and you're you're trying to and and what you're doing is you're thinking too hard, because photography helps us, and the way it helped me and the way I, I suggested it might help other people is that all of us have the same experience when once in a while when we're shooting we make a picture we want to see before all the others, 
And so I can't wait to get back and see that enlarge. I can't wait to look at it and work with it. It's, it's just like something. And then that's the lizard brain. That's, that's way back in your head. That's, that's, that's something about that moment keyed something deep in your experience of the world. And you want to work with that, that you can't wait to see that picture. Does that sound, sound familiar to you? Oh, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've never met a photographer that doesn't have that happen. Well, what, what I did in my career is that when I had that experience, I said, okay, I'm going to do just that. I'm going to do just that thing. And, and when I, next time I came out with a camera, I went, I photographed either the same subject or something similar, very similar. I tried to, I, I just tried to narrow my field of focus right down to that, that one thing that really had tripped my switch. One of two things happens. One, it doesn't work after shooting that for a, like a, a few days, you kind of decide, okay, I did enough of that. Or maybe a few months even you start to really feel bored doing it. So what you've done then, um, as you back away from that, is you've closed the door. And you don't need to go through that door again because you've, you've examined it, you've looked at it, you've seen how you fit with it. But you've learned some things in the process about, you, about what you do and you don't like. And you've also polished your skills. So it's not a wasted effort at all. It's a very important effort. In the beginning, photographers photograph many things and that's important work because it's sharpening the stick for them. It's giving them skills. So then, ideally, you do it and you continue to be fascinated by that thing. And then you have, in the course of doing that work, a picture that you want to see before all the others. And that helps you refine. And then finally, you get to the point where you like what you're photographing so much that you don't want to stop. And you don't even care what other people think about it. And that solves the art problem. That's the answer to the art problem right there. Making art is for having it and making it. Making art is for making art. It's the best way I know to get in, get in touch with, us, with the subconscious being that is the majority of who we are, deep in our heads. Um, all that architecture of thought and association that goes into what we like is deeply buried in our minds. And you need help, you need help from the invisible man that's, that's back there, the invisible person, and they'll give it to you. Ooh, I can't wait to print this one. That, that, that worked for me. It, um, one picture I took at a, in, a, in a, hip, a commune in Northern California changed my life because it was totally unexpected. It wasn't something I'm planning on doing. It was um, my brother lived up there and he said, listen, go to the commune. It's interesting. There's some very nice people there. There's good faces. So I drive hours into the mountains to get to this place. And I get there and there's like 80 naked people standing in the road. This is January and this is a couple thousand feet, 3,000 feet. So it's cold and there's snow on the ground. And what they've done is they've made a sweat lodge and they covered it in blankets and put hot stones inside. And they were all taking sweats to clean their, clean their pores open. They're all standing on, like a lot of them are steaming. The steam's rising off their bodies because it's, it's cold, it's a bright day. So I made some photographs. I'd never seen that many people comfortable naked at the same time. It was the first for me. And I made one picture of a young girl sitting in the shed, in a shed, and I was astonished that she was so completely at, at peace with her body that they all were. I had never seen that. I'd never seen the absence of shame before, and I was hooked. Um, that that's that changed everything. Everything I've ever seen of you is, we'll just call it figurative in some way. So there's always a human shit form in it. Do you take pictures that don't have people in them? I do. But they're, they're what I think of as affectionate landscapes. I take pictures of places that I really, really love. I have a number of pictures of the beach at Montalive, but in most of them, 
I've let there be a figure in the picture way, way, way in the distance, like teeny, almost too small to even see, because the beach is an immense space. The proscenium arch of that beach is vast. When the tide goes out, uh, there's wet sand and beautiful tide pools, which in the summer sun can be very warm. And since the ocean is often cold, there you can lie in them like taking a warm bath. It's a beautiful place. And so I've made landscapes there. And I've made some landscapes in Northern California where my brother lives. I've been going there for what feels like most of my life. A long time. Okay. Matthew, thank you so much for your kind interest. Oh, this has been fun. Uh, thank you. I mean, thank you for your time. Yeah, you're not nearly as arrogant as I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's true. I hope I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>